Good morning, Redemption Church. Hope you guys are doing well. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Tony. I'm one of our college pastors here. Uh, I have the privilege of pastoring the Salt Company in the city of St. Paul, and it is an absolute joy. Love you guys. Great crew. Uh, it is the best job in the entire world, as you can see. They're great. So, so excited to be with you this morning. Hey, if you've got a Bible, we'd love for you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That's what we'll be at this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We are cruising through 27 verses this morning, so we got to get started. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we'll be. And as we open up there, I just want to tell you guys a quick story. So I wasn't born here in the United States. I was born in South Korea. And 14 years ago, I got to go back to my homeland, okay? And it was amazing. First of all, the Korean barbecue, fire, so good. Some of you guys are like, oh my gosh, yes, you've had it. Okay, so I went back to South Korea, and it was this incredible time. But one of my highlights was actually getting to spend time with my grandfather, who lived in a paper mache house, which was so cool. I've got a picture of a bad one. It's got a little watermark. It's unfortunate, but this is the vibe, okay? And one of my highlights was actually being able to be in the backyard with my grandfather and have a conversation and in his backyard was this beautiful bamboo forest. Okay, fast forward 10 years later, I'd come to know Jesus. I was falling deeply in love with him. And I remember having a conversation with my mother about my grandfather's life. And here's what she said. She said that my grandfather was born into cultural Buddhism. He was born into a country of war and stricken with starvation. And he would never really find himself in a room like this, praising Jesus. So at 78 years old, my grandfather would die a cultural Buddhist, spending the last four years of his life in a coma. And the three words that would describe my grandfather's life was actually alcoholism, abuse, and adultery. See, one thing that I'd realized in that moment was that the logical conclusion of a man born into a world of sin and suffering was that of my grandfather's. And at that time, God was teaching me what it looked like to actually give up the conveniences, comforts, and currencies in my life so that people who are far away from Jesus, much like my grandfather, could get into the kingdom of God. And so I ended up getting this tattoo of a bamboo forest so that every morning I would wake up and remember that my call as a Christian is to give up the things of this life so that others could get in. So as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that's the organizing question that I want to ask you this morning. What can you give up? so that others can get in to the kingdom of God. All right, open up your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to start in verses 1 through 7. Here's what he says. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take on a believing wife? Do we not, as the other apostles do, and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends to a flock without getting some of the milk? Okay, so here's what we're going to see is that Paul had a radically different financial philosophy than we do in our modern age today. In fact, Paul spends 18 verses describing this one argument and he uses 19 rhetorical questions, which initially when you read this, you're like, wow, that's spicy, okay? Like, I don't know if you've been in an argument and they're like using rhetorical questions, like I've lost, okay? So that's where Paul is. 19 rhetorical questions, 18 verses to describe this one theological concept that as an apostle of Jesus Christ and as a pastor in the church that he deserved to get paid. 
verses 1 through 7 is him talking about this in a logical sense. He uses this example, who serves as a soldier on his own expense? Like, if you were in war, how much of a bummer would it be if you had to pack your own lunch? Like, he's like, don't do that. No one does that. Or he uses an argument like, who has a vineyard without eating some of the fruit? And then the next seven verses, which I don't have time to read this morning, which is verses 8 through 14, Paul is going to give an argument theologically. That in the Old Testament law, God was calling the people of God to actually give and support the people who were doing the temple work, the oxen who were treading out the grain. And he's basically saying, this is our lives. We're called to give financially so that those who are serving the church can live. Now, saying that, in verse 15, he kind of shifts the gear, okay? So he goes from making a huge argument about why he deserves to do that. And then in verse 15, here's what he says. He says, but I have made no use of any of these rights. In other words, he's not getting paid by the church nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting, which is super intense, okay? Like, I was like, wow, die. Okay, so what is Paul saying here? He's saying that he would rather die than have someone misunderstand his heart for Christ. See, his ground for boasting was simply this, that Paul was an apostle who had an undevoted attention to Christ. He did not serve any other master but King Jesus himself. So why does he spend 18 verses describing why he could get paid but chooses not to get paid? The historical context is this, that at the time there were people called super apostles, okay? Not actually great apostles, they were super, hypothetically. And here's what they did. They were great speakers, great motivational speakers, would travel around and would speak these great words and they basically would get paid heavily for it. In other words, Paul knew that these super apostles weren't serving Jesus, they were serving money. And so in his heart of hearts, he would say to himself, he would rather go unpaid, work another full-time job as a tent maker, than be confused with these people who would rather serve money than King Jesus. So here's what we find in our first point here in this text, that Paul had a radically different financial philosophy than the rest of the world around him. Here's what Paul knew, that money was important, but there was something significantly more important than money that his goal was not to make money, his goal was to make disciples. The very essence of Paul's life was a missional life to reach people far from Jesus, and he would rather give up half his salary, like half his earning power, think about that, that's a lot of money. He would rather give that up if that was to be a hindrance to the gospel. So here's what we find in the paradigm that we're asking ourselves this morning. Paul had a radically different financial perspective. He was willing to give up his finances so others could enter in to the kingdom of God. He saw money not as the goal, but as a means for mission. Okay, so as I was thinking about this, I was thinking back to a time in my college experience where I was meeting with one of my mentors. His name's Jordan Adams. He's planting a church in West Lafayette. And I remember sitting down, shout out to Emma, she's going. Okay, <laughs> she's excited about it. I remember this moment where we had just started our first multiply campaign. This was back in the midpoint days of Salt City Church, no longer Redemption Church now. And uh, he gave me this book to read called The Treasure Principle by Randy Acorn, okay? It's like this big, it's like in a tiny book, but it packs a huge punch, okay? So I remember reading this book and it kind of flipping my worldview on money. Because up until that point, I had, in my heart of arts, been obsessed and addicted to making money. That's like the only thing I ever wanted in life. In a, in a very real way, we grew up in the projects of Nashville, we grew up under the poverty line, we grew up incredibly poor. So the only goal that I had before growing deeply in love with Jesus was making a ton of money. But then I read this book and by the spirit of God, Jesus began to change my worldview. 
where I started to realize that money wasn't the goal. Money is important and super helpful, but it wasn't the goal of my life. But actually money could be used for the mission field of God. And during that time, I started thinking about, man, we were raising money for our first building. And I was like, I could like, as a college student, potentially buy one of these chairs. Like, I don't just mean like literally buy them, you know what I mean? But I was like, buy them for all of eternity for this church. You know, like it, it was really exciting. And so I went from being a valet, I was a car parker. One day I was a valet, the next day, I was a kingdom building car parker. It was so exciting, guys. I'd go to work and someone would give me a five and I was like, wow, this could make a disciple. I was like, thank you so much. You have no idea how impactful this is gonna be. Or I get a 20 and I was like, this is like half of my monthly support for my friend Amber who's making disciples in the red light district in Bangkok, Thailand. So women who are stuck in prostitution could actually know the freedom of Christ. I was like, give me another 20. I can go to a whole month. You know, I'd, I didn't say that to them, but it changed. Yeah, that'd be awkward. But it changed my worldview on money. It gave me an, an unbelievable sense of meaning for the work that I was doing. I was a college student parking cars, and then overnight, I realized that the money that I made could build the kingdom of God. Okay, here's why I think this is really important. We at our church don't talk about money that often. I know Trav just gave a building update, and it's great, but we don't, like, we don't, like, solicit whatever. We just don't do that stuff. But the reason why it's so important to have a view like this is because one of the things that as Christians we need to be really wary of is if we view money the exact same way our culture does. If the way that we think about money, the way that we spend money, the way that we use money looks exactly the same as the rest of our city, what does it say about the God that we serve? So here's my hope for us this morning, that all of us would actually get a vision for our lives. Like we'd be like, wow, no matter what I'm doing, I can be a car parking kingdom builder. I can be an engineer kingdom builder. I can be a nurse kingdom builder. Whatever it is that you would actually see that the finances that God has given you to earn and the finances that you have can be mobilized for the mission of God so that people in Bangkok, Thailand, West Lafayette, Indiana, St. Paul, Minnesota, and to the ends of the earth can come to know King Jesus. That the finance he's given you is not for you to keep but actually for you use for the kingdom of God. And the second thing that I hope pastorally happens is that as you give, you would actually start loving your job. Not like actually, like not loving your job more than Jesus, but like, you know, like being grateful for an opportunity to make finances so that you could see that at your work, you can make disciples through your money, you can make disciples that your life can be leveraged for the kingdom of God, irregardless of the vocation that you have, that you would see ultimate meaning, not in your work, but in what God will do through the work that you have. That's my hope for us as a church, that we would spend our money in a way that looks different than the world around us. Okay, second thing that we see Paul that gave up was his cultural preferences. Look with me to verse 19. I know, we're cruising, verse 19. Here's what he says. For though I am free from all, I've made my servant, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, parenthesis, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, we'll come back to that one, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, by all means, I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them and their blessings. Okay, I love verse 19, because here's Paul's logic. He is free. Like Paul knows who he is in Christ. He knows that he is made as a son of God. He knows that he is called as a holy nation, a royal priesthood. He knows his identity. He is completely free. Nothing that his old Pharisee buddy said about him don't matter. What the other apostles say about him don't matter. He is completely free. 
and yet following the logic of the text, though he could get paid, he chooses not to. Though he was free, he chooses to be a servant. And not just a servant to the type of people that are fun to serve, but a servant to all. Verse 20 through 23 is basically just an application of this, right? He says to the Jew, he's a Jew, right? Paul was an ethnic and religious Jew before he came to knew Jesus. So here's what he's saying is that, man, when he goes back to Jerusalem and he's sitting down at breakfast with his Jewish buddies and they're getting like their Denny's dozen or whatever they get back in first century Jerusalem, he's gonna get the turkey sausage. You know what I'm saying? Like he's not getting the bacon, even though he knows bacon is better. Like he knows that, but he's like, I'm doing the turkey sausage. Like he's, he's contextualizing to the Jews. He's actually submitting himself under the law of God in the Old Testament, the 600 laws that would define a Jewish person's life. He's actually submitting himself to that even though he doesn't have to, even though he's completely free. To the Greek, to the one outside of law, which basically means the Greek, he becomes a Greek. Like guys, this is actually really cool. Paul was not a Greek, which means he had cross cultures. He actually went to a different cultural group in order to reach them for the gospel. And so he did what was uncomfortable to him culturally. Like he, he went to the Greeks, he did what the Greeks did. He talked about what the Greeks talked about. And Acts, we see that he knew the philosophers of the day. He knew Rogan. He knew all the other, you know, cool hip podcasters. Like he knew them all. Like he was, he was having conversations, you know what I'm saying? Like he, he understood the culture around him and he did that so too, so as to reach the Greeks. One caveat here in verse 21 is it says he was not outside of the law, but under the law of God. Okay, one way to misunderstand this text is to say, okay, so Paul, right? went to the Greeks and did everything the Greeks did. Does that mean that I should go to our culture and do everything our culture is doing? And the answer is no. Paul did not sin as a means for mission. Now, the reason why this is important is because I do college ministry and I hear this all the time. Like, I'll just go to the bars and get inebriated and share the gospel in an inebriated state with all my friends. I'm like, that is a bad idea and unbiblical. Don't do it, don't do it. But this is what Paul's saying, that he was not gonna sin to share the gospel, he would actually continue in holiness and in holiness subject himself as a servant to the people around him so as to share the gospel with them. It was actually this beautiful high character move. And lastly, one of the things I'm really thankful for that he says in this text is that to the weak, he became a weak. Now, if you think about Paul, before he met Jesus, he was a stud Pharisee, okay? Like he had it going on. He was like on his way to the top, it was awesome. He had an incredibly high societal standard and a high societal status. But not only does Paul just give up his cultural preferences, he actually gives up his cultural status and becomes a servant to the weakest in the world. Like, how beautiful is that? He was probably a genius, incredibly smart, could have been really good at what he was doing, but chose as a servant to subject himself under as a servant. Okay, so the question is why? Why would Paul do that? That sounds like a really unfortunate and difficult way to live. Why? Would he do that? We see in verse 19, so that by all means, he might win some of them. Okay. Here's the application point for us in 2023. Redemption. Paul would actually set aside his cultural preferences and his status in order to reach people far from Jesus. And the question that I have for us is, do we actually care about the eternal souls around us more than our preferences? And I know that's a kind of a harsh question, okay? I get it, it's heavy. But I actually mean that, like, when you're with your unbelieving coworker, are you actively thinking about their eternal salvation more than your comfort and preferences? Or are you talking about what you wanna talk about because it's easy to talk about what you wanna talk about? Does your unbelieving classmate's salvation matter more to you than winning a political argument? 
Like, it feels so good to win arguments. Like, I get it. Like, I really do. But is it worth it, actually, to subdue your desire to win political arguments, to win that person's soul for Christ? Is it worth it to share the gospel with people who are hard to love and actually become not just a a good missionary, but someone who actually lowers themselves societally to reach people who are far from Jesus? Is it worth it for us to actually look at our own cultural preferences, our convenience and our comforts and lay them aside for those who are outside of the kingdom of God? I hope that if we talk to the people in our lives, they would start saying things like this. Listen, I've known you for five years. I don't even know what you like. Like, I don't. Because every time we're around, you just serve me. You just ask about what I like. Like, one of the things that Drew and I were talking about in this text is that some of the most mature Christians he knows, he has no idea what their preferences are. I'm sure they've got them. Like, Terry Langland has preferences. Terry Langland has preferences. But I don't know them because every time I hang out with him, all he does is serve me. You know? It's so frustrating. It's so frustrating. Like, I always ask him what he likes. He never answers me. Doesn't matter. But what if we could be that for everyone else? For an unbelieving world, how amazing would it be if the one thing they said about you is, honestly, I don't even really know what they like, but they love everything that I like, and they serve me so well. I believe that we would have an opportunity to share the gospel. The one reason why I'm really passionate about this is ultimately because of this. This is really practically speaking. I was talking with my buddy Josh Langland about this text, and we were talking about how, practically speaking, if someone who is outside of the kingdom of God in our culture today, which is a postmodern, post-Christian culture, if they can smell your preferences on you more than they can smell the aroma of Christ, they'll never invite you into their home. You'll never get an opportunity to share with them the love of Jesus if they can care, if they can tell that we care more about our comforts and preferences than their souls. So here's the opportunity that we have this morning is to take inventory of our cultural preferences and say, I'm going to lay them down so that those who are on the outside of the kingdom of God can get in. Okay, the last thing that we see that Paul gave up was his desires. Look with me to verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wealth, wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Okay, so here's what Paul is saying here. If we want to run the race, okay, if we want to finish the race, if we want to fight the good fight of seeing dead people come to life, for seeing lost people come to know Jesus, if we want to give up things so that others may get in, we need to exercise self-control and discipline of our bodies and self-control over our sin. One of the ideas that's been fleshed out in this book that I'm reading called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which is so good and so confusing and hard to read. Like, I'm just like... Six pages, I'm like, oh, what, what should I eat for lunch today? Like, that's what I look like when I read the book. Great book. Here's something that they've discussed a lot. In our modern 2023 psyche, we have a new understanding of ourselves. The self is defined like this. If you want to be an authentic, joyful self, if you want to live the best life ever, if you want to live a life fullness of joy, here's what you need to do. You need to look deep within yourself 
and assess your desires and preferences. And then excavate those desires and preferences to the greatest need in your life, to the greatest goal of your life, and to fully live out your life, you need to express those completely. In other words, here's the cultural gospel today. If you're tired, if you're burnt out on religion, if you're exhausted and distraught, then here's what you do. You look at your deepest desires and you do those things. But here's the problem with that line of thinking. If you do that, if that becomes your ultimate worldview, the only person that will matter in your life is yourself. The only God you will serve is your own desires. The only law that you have is what you have written on your own heart through your own desires. You will end up living a life of sin in a world of sin and suffering. See, the gospel is not self-fulfillment. Paul's actually gonna describe here a life of self-denial. It's not actualizing yourself and living up to your potential. It's actually dying to yourself and picking up your cross. Like that's the paradox of the gospel. He's saying we discipline ourselves and our bodies. Why? Because to be outside of the world, to be unlike the world, we must actually know that our desires are not always beautiful, but in fact, they're mostly sinful. And as we discipline ourselves, we may become advocates of the kingdom of God. Okay. Here's how I want to conclude our time this morning. In review, Paul gave up his finances so that others could get in. He gave up his cultural preferences so that others can get in. He gave up his desires so that others can get in. But I actually want to show you something in this text that I think is really beautiful. See, 1 Corinthians 9 is not ultimately about praising Paul, okay? Paul's a great example. Love the guy. He's great. It's not about praising Paul. It's actually about looking through Paul. Paul is not a mirror to assess ourselves, but he's actually a window to look into who Jesus Christ was. And so I'm going to actually reread out verses 19 to 23 and kind of commentate as I go, okay? This is verse 19. For though I am free for all, I've made, a, I've made myself a servant to all. Okay, Think about the freest being in the universe. Who was it? Not in bondage to sin, not in bondage to this decaying body that we all have. Bummer. Jesus Christ was the most free being in all of the earth. And here's what he chose to do. He chose not to take advantage of that freedom, but become a servant Messiah for all of us. Like how beautiful is that? To the Jews, he was literally a Jew, like came ethnically as a Jew to communicate a new covenant to the old covenant. He came to reach people who were Jews. To the outsider, here's what Jesus would do. He wouldn't find his way in the inside social echelon of first century Jerusalem, but he would actually find himself outside of the camp. To those outside of the holy city, he would die on the outside of the city so that those who are on the outside of the family of God could say, my God died on the outside. So once I was an outsider, but now I'm brought in. To the weak, who came weaker than our God? Who else was born in a manger like our God? Who else was born into a working class family like our God? who experienced the brutality of being beaten like our God. And nowhere else is it more prevalent that to the weak he became a weak than in the cross himself. See, the Roman cross was not reserved for pretty wealthy people, people of good social standing. It would have been repulsive to everyone and anyone unless there was someone of a societal slave on the cross. The weakness by which our king died was to lower his social status from the creator of the universe all the way down 
to a slave. Jesus Christ would die as a weak man so that those of us, all of us who are weak in our sin could be resurrected with him to life. Here's kind of my final call for us and my hope for us as a church family. That we would actually take inventory of what Jesus gave up so that we could get him. That we see that he didn't just give up his financial opportunity like he wasn't rich. He didn't just give up his desires or his cultural preferences. He gave up his life for us. So what more of a logical response than we have than to in return, in worship, give up our financial philosophies, our cultural preferences, and the desires inside of our souls. We serve a God who gave up everything to get us. So let's worship him with the way that we give up everything so that others can get him. Let me pray. Father, the paradox of the gospel. Man, that's so good. That's so good. Father, this is good news that in the world, we're told that if we wanna live a life fullness of joy, we need to excavate our desires and preferences and elevate them above everything else. But Jesus, I'm so glad that the good news for us this morning is not self-fulfillment, but it's self-denial. It's not living to our own dreams or living to our own desires, but actually dying to our own desires and picking up our cross. And the reason why I'm so glad of that, Jesus, is that who else was more fully alive than you? Who got to experience the joy of this world more than you? Who got to experience fullness of life more than you? And Jesus, that's what you modeled for us. You modeled the 1 Corinthians 9 type of life. Father, once we were far gone, once we were on the outside, but you took on flesh and blood, you came back on earth, would actually die outside of the holy city, outside of the camp, so that we who were once outside could be brought in. You didn't just give up the things of this world, you gave up your life so that we could get into the kingdom of God. So Father, when we think about the legacy of our church family, may it not be the cool lights, the worship, the cool venue, whatever it is, may the legacy of our church family be that we sought after King Jesus, and in response to him, gave up our lives so that others could get in because you gave up your life so that we could. Father, change us, mend us, make us to be more like you. It's in your mighty name that we pray.